last week, we started this series, and if you're new this morning, a special welcome to you. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here at ICC. We're so glad to have you. We started last week a new series, and I told you that we're going to be in this up until Easter Sunday. And our heart for this is really to take time to just meditate on the cross of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to take time to set our minds and to set our hearts on truly what Jesus did for us and continues to do for us, but specifically what he did for us in those last moments of his life and what ultimately he did for us dying for our sin, being buried, and rising again on the third day for newness of life. For many of us who grew up in church, I know that the Easter story is familiar. I know that the story of the cross of Christ is familiar. But I told you last week, it's almost like I just want to hold it before us like a diamond and just take it up to the light and just look at it and turn it together week by week by week and just look at all the facets of what is truly there that we truly might behold in a new way how amazing, how wonderful, how precious the gift that God gave us in his son Jesus truly is. I want you to emotionally connect to it. Not just to recognize it with your head and go, okay, yeah, I understand these things. I, I recognize these things. I know those things are true. I don't want you to do that. No, I want you to emotionally, I want me to emotionally Connect with what Christ is doing for us when he gave his life for us that we might be with him. I want you to be moved by it, stirred by it. In the heart of hearts, I want you to say, oh my God, you are so wonderful. You are so precious. I cannot believe that you did this for me. There's a difference in head knowledge and heart knowledge. I'm asking you today, do you have a heart that savors the cross of Jesus Christ? And that's what I'm just opening the word for us together and unpacking it, holding it up to the light and say, don't you see it? It's so beautiful. Can't we just admire it together? And I'm right there with you. Just going, wow, this is good. God is so good. I told you last week, uh, we're kind of taking an interesting approach. I am week by week unpacking the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. If you weren't here last week, what I said was there are seven phrases, there are seven things that Jesus said actually from the cross. And we need to pay attention to these things because in the last moments of a person's life, what comes out is very important. And for Jesus, every word is very intentional. Every word is sovereignly ordained and every word is for us, not just for those who heard him that day, but for us to hear to understand truly what it is that he's doing there on the cross. All of the words there have great significance and help us to really get it and to really savor what it is that he's doing. So last week, we looked at the first phrase, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we talked about the forgiveness that Jesus there on the cross is forgiving. He's dying to forgive our debts, to wipe our debts before the Lord clean. He is spilling his blood that we might have clean hearts before God. We talked about the preciousness of Christ's forgiveness and the cost of that forgiveness by his own body and blood. 
Well, this week, we are looking at the second saying of Jesus from the cross. And actually, it relates to the first. It's along the same lines as forgiveness. Two of the seven phrases relate to Christ's forgiveness. But specifically, what's interesting about this is that it's really forgiveness applied to the individual. What we're looking at today is the words that came out of Jesus' mouth to one of the criminals there by his side. And what we're looking at specifically is the aspect of forgiveness applied to a person. It's a very personal aspect of what Christ came to do. And specifically, what we're talking about is salvation this morning. That Christ not only came to offer forgiveness to all, but Christ came to save every sinner who would turn to him in repentance and in faith. Forgiveness applied to the individual is what we call salvation. Just because Christ died on the cross for sin doesn't mean that every person in the world will be saved. There must be an application of that forgiveness in a very personal way. And that is called salvation. Not only did Christ die to offer forgiveness, but he died to save individuals like those that we will read about today in our text and like you and me. Christ is a great Savior to all who will believe. And he died on the cross to accomplish this salvation. Let's go back to our text, Luke chapter 23. And if you remember, the context of this is it's Friday. They're in Jerusalem. There's been a trial. Jesus has been put before the people and two rulers of the day. He has been condemned unjustly for crimes he did not commit, for sins that he did not have. Yet the crowd demanded, crucify him. Crucify him. A true criminal was released so that Jesus would be kept and moved toward the cross. The smell of death is very much in the air. The procession moves outside the city walls just north of the gate of Damascus. It moves to a place that's reserved for executions. There are many crosses standing side by side. Those who have been condemned to death have now carried the cross in extreme agony and pain. They've already been beaten. They've already been mocked. They've been spat upon crown of thorns pushed down upon the head, flesh ripped open, blood everywhere. They're laid upon the cross, nails driven through the hands, not above and below, but right through the hands on both sides, nails driven through the feet that they might hang there. Christ, as we know, is praying the whole time, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. They continue to do what they are doing. 
The cross ultimately is raised up, jolted into place. The body would have shook violently. Now all of the weight are on the nails that hung him there. The struggle, the physical struggle begins. And what the scripture says, if you look back at Luke chapter 23 in your Bibles... It says in verse 33 that when they came to that place, the skull, they crucified him there. And there are criminals there. One on the right and one on the left. The word that Luke uses here is not just a word for just some doofus who goofed up one day. No, it's a word that literally means these are serious dudes who had serious problems. They are professional criminals. Some translations will have robbers, some will have thieves, but essentially, man, these are hoods. These are thugs. These are guys who are serious. They have schemed. They have plotted. They have intentionally done what they have done, maybe for profit, maybe just because of their own corrupt hearts, but they are wicked to the core, and they have been tried for what they have done, and they have been found guilty The law is now executing justice of them. These are the men who hang beside our precious, innocent Savior that day. We don't know their names. We don't know where they came from. We don't know their stories. We don't even know their specific crimes. But I do want you to know that this was not accidental. That Jesus is hung between two criminals. That this is part of God's sovereignty and his plan of salvation. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. That he would be counted as one who would be worthy to die. There he hangs by the side of the road as one who looks like he's done what shouldn't be done. He's numbered with the transgressors. Was there any people in more desperate situation? I mean, just think about it. Just, just, I just want you to, maybe you need to close your eyes and just put yourself there. Think about the desperate situation that these guys would have been in. They've been tried. Judgment's been announced. Sentence's been carried out. Every legal avenue completely exhausted as close to death as you possibly could be, yet you are still alive. Brutally crucified. Dying in agony. You've done the crime. Sins have been committed. You're guilty. Justly punished. You deserve to die. You know it. By sundown, you will be dead. These, I mean, just think about the situation these guys are in. And honestly, they're, they're, they're together. I don't know if they're together in their crime. Many people think that they could have been partners in crime, but they are together. They're being crucified at the same place at the same time. They're hanging side by side. Likely would have heard, we know they would have heard what each other said. But I'm telling you, the interesting thing about this is that these two guys, though they seem so much alike, could not have been more different that day. 
They couldn't have been more different that day. Both of them there. Dying to the right, one to the right of Jesus, one to the left of Jesus. Hanging there to pay the penalty for crimes that they did commit. Gasping for their last breaths, knowing that soon they would die. You think they are like both of them see Jesus, both see the sign above his head, both hear the prayer that he is praying, and yet we see that these two guys are very different. And it shows me, it should show you. I'm, it's amazing to me. You see these guys in this room here this morning. There are people that hear the message of Jesus. Hear the prayer of Jesus. What Jesus wants to offer. And yet can respond in two totally different ways. It's the same Savior who's being crucified between them. Offering the same thing to both of them. And yet they are totally different in how they respond. And this morning there are, there are those two people here. You can offer the message of salvation, proclaim it. But ultimately, there are two types of people, and they're represented here in the criminals. And I really believe that this is why God gives us this, why God has this happen, is so that we might see that it's not enough just to know that Jesus can forgive, but that forgiveness has to be personally applied in a person's life. And whether or not it is personally applied and received and believed in a person's life makes all the difference for that person we see that here with these two guys I don't know why forgiveness can be so difficult sometimes it is so difficult sometimes for people to believe that Jesus can actually forgive them and I can't do that in a person's heart but God can God can God can reveal the light of the glory of Jesus Christ to a person such that they not only recognize it from a distance, but receive it personally. And that's what makes the difference. Look at the first criminal. Look back at Luke chapter 23. It says, verse 34, we looked at last week, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see that they cast lot and divide his garments. People are looking by. They're scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. The soldiers are mocking him. Verse 36. If you're the king, you can save yourself. Verse 37. Sign hangs over him. Verse 38. King of the Jews. And now we see the first of two criminals. All right. I just want to point out briefly these two guys. The first one says this. Verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. First guy represents many in our world today and some who are even here this morning. The word in Greek is literally blasphemo. You recognize it, I hope. It's the idea of blaspheming Christ. To speak reproachfully, to rail, to revile, to blaspheme, to hurl insults. Essentially, he's 
hurling insults at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, hanging right beside him. He's mocking him. He's reviling him. The difference with this guy, I mean, just to be honest, the difference in the two guys, one wants escape, not forgiveness. The other wants forgiveness and not escape. The first guy here, the only thing he really cares about is himself. At this point, he would have turned to anything and everything that would have gotten him off of that cross. But Jesus happens to be the one that's right beside him. He's looking at Jesus much like a slot machine in Tunica and going, I hope if I pull this lever hard enough, it's going to give me what I'm looking for. If anything else had been beside him that might have possibly saved, I think he would have been crying out to that thing. What he wants is not forgiveness because what he's asking for is just to get off of that darn cross. Come on, dude. You say you're somebody, come on, get me off of this thing. I don't want to die today. His whole attitude is one of escape. His objective to save his earthly skin. He doesn't really care about what he's done to deserve it. He just wants out of it. He doesn't care about Jesus so much as what Jesus he thinks that Jesus could offer him. There's no brokenness. There's no penitence. There's no humility. He rails the Lord and Savior. He misses the whole point. That's the first kind. The first criminal we see. Scripture goes on and it says that there's another criminal on the other side. If you look at verse 40, it says this. It says, but the other, what's it say? He rebuked him. So here Jesus is hanging. You've got two guys, one on either side. They obviously can hear each other. They're obviously talking to each other. This guy's over here railing at Jesus, trying to get himself off the cross. Come on, dude. What's your problem? Can't you get me down from here? And the other guy on the other side, and you can imagine the scene. I mean, the blood and the glory and the agony and the heaping breaths. Shut up, dude. Don't you know who you're talking to? He's rebuking him there from the cross. He's saying, dude, stop that. He says this, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, not to the other criminal, but he turns to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, look at verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Amid the blood, amid the glory, amid the agony, amid the pain, faith. There's a miracle in this moment that somehow in the hours that they're hanging on the cross, we don't know exactly when this happened, 
But it seems to be soon after they get hung up and it's just them on the same level above everybody else and they seem to just be talking to each other. Some moment, there's a miracle that happens in this guy's heart such that suddenly he goes, man, I need this Jesus. I say it's a miracle because he's looking at Jesus bleeding. He's looking at Jesus naked. He's looking at Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. He's looking at a man who's suffering and about to die. These are not marks of an earthly king, would you say? I mean, if he had maybe seen Jesus, and we don't know what he saw, but did he see him raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he see him feed the multitudes with a few fish and loaves of bread? Did this guy see Jesus teaching with authority that no one had ever seen before? We don't know. But what we do know is that in this moment, what he's seeing is a man being crucified. And yet, he is understanding with spiritual insight that this man is not just any man. He's not another criminal. Maybe it was the difference in how he was being crucified. Maybe it was seeing his own vileness up against the pure righteousness of Christ. Maybe it was the prayers that he heard Christ praying as people kicked him and railed him and mocked him and drove nails into his hand that he kept praying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. What was it that this guy saw that the other guy didn't? What he saw was a savior to be worshiped, not another man to be railed at. Do you see the miracle that's happening in his heart? He saw the heart of the gospel. And the characteristics that we see in this guy are the characteristics that are needed in any person to have the forgiveness that Jesus offers from the cross applied in a personal way for salvation. What do we see him say? What do we see as characteristics of what's going on in his heart? The first thing he says is what? Uh... Do you not fear God? The first thing that we see is that he fears the Lord. He's submitted to the Creator. He's not railing against Him. Look at then what he says. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds... This guy is not trying to shirk the justice, the judgment, the right penalty for what he has done, both before man and before God. He's saying, I know my sin, and I am owning up to it. I know my guilt. I'm not hiding it. I'm a man who has nothing, nothing To say, you know what, I don't deserve this. No, I know I deserve this. Dude, don't you understand that we deserve this? 
He's confessing his sin. He's humbling himself. He's realizing that suffering and judgment is what is due to him. I think this is a reason that a lot of people can't apply the forgiveness that Jesus offers. It's because they don't really believe that if they don't apply it in a personal way, that they're really going to be judged for their sin. They don't really believe that sin merits death and separation from God. But the scripture plainly teaches that if you don't receive the forgiveness that God offers you in Jesus Christ, that you will die and you will be separated from God forever. The wages, the due of sin is death and separation from God. And that condemnation is just. You deserve judgment and so do I. And this guy's saying, you know what? I'm not hiding from the fact that I'm guilty. I know my sin. I know my guilt. I know that this judgment is rightly deserved. I'm about to die and it's going to be horrible. And I have nothing to stand on because I know I deserve this. Confession. Humility. And then what does he say? But this man has done nothing wrong. Not only does he know his own guilt and his own sin, but he recognizes the righteousness of Christ. He says, look, this guy, he doesn't deserve to be up here. He's the one who has what I need. He is good. And somehow he connects that he's Jesus is there to offer his goodness that he has the power and the willingness to offer his goodness, his righteousness to him. And the reason I say that is because right after he turns to Jesus and asks of Jesus, pleads of Jesus, imagine the scene in his gasping last breaths. What does he say? Jesus. Look at your scripture. Jesus. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He fears God. He confesses sin. He humbles himself. He acknowledges the righteousness and the power of Christ. And he pleads. He casts himself on the mercy of Jesus. He pleads with Jesus. Remember me. Jesus, if you can save me, if you can bring me back to God, if you can put me in your kingdom because I know that you are a king, if you can offer mercy, Jesus, please, will you do it for me? I'm all here. Will you do it for me? Two totally different guys. Totally different hearts. Do you see it? Now, this is where it gets good. (laughs) I want to point your attention in our final moments to an almighty Savior. What is Jesus' reply? It's the second saying of the cross. 
and you need to get it, and you need to savor it. What does he say? He says nothing to the first guy. He lets that guy be as he is. He says nothing to the first guy. And to the second, what does he say? You know what? I'm a king and I'm going through pain. I can't really tolerate your request right now. No. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. You better forget it. I'm not forgiving you. You deserve to be there. No. I don't forgive people. I don't save people on their deathbed. You should have a chance for that in your life. You should have done it while you had a chance. That's not what Jesus says. He could have said it, but it's not what he says. What does he say? He looks at the guy and he says, Today, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Truly, the Hebrew word that literally means it is absolutely certain, translated into Greek, amen. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I can't say it with greater confidence, Jesus says. This is absolutely going to happen, in other words. Truly, I say, it is God whose words offer life. God is on the cross, hanging there. He's saying, it's not somebody else saying this to you. This is God. This is the creator who you're about to meet. I say to you. It's very personal. Let me tell you, God deals with the individual. I can't speak out here and save all of you. God has to deal with you on a personal basis. Your mama, your daddy, your husband, your wife, your kids, they will do nothing for you when you stand before God. You've got to deal with him directly, personally. He says, I'm saying this to you. God relates to the individual. He says, today, Today, in Greek, it literally means this very day. It means the moment and time that you're in this day, before the day comes to an end, today. He's speaking now words of salvation, and he says it's going to happen today. This throws out every every possibility for purgatory. This throws out every possibility for some holding state, some future resurrection that we've got to wait on before we get to be with God. This throws out any need for somebody to baptize you on your behalf or pray prayers for you or whatever. No. Salvation happens in a moment. And the moment that a person dies who is in Christ, they will go to be with God. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verse 8 says, If we are absent from the body, we will be present with the Lord. He says, today, today. You know what else this means? This is great news for you. Some of you guys, you're still learning this. This is great news of the cross, all right? I can't wait to tell it to you. You know what else this means? What time does this criminal have to do? What time does he have to change his behavior? Up to this point in his life, he's been a dirty, rotten criminal. He's just confessed it on the cross. He's done nothing up to this point to do anything to warrant salvation, has he? No, sirree, Bobcat. 
Is he going to get off of that cross before he dies, his, breathe his last breath? Is he going to do anything from that point to the rest of his life that shows, oh, well, I'm a great church attender. I've been to many small groups. I give regularly by my righteousness. I have shown myself to be right with God. Does he, can he do any of that? Can he change his behavior from that point forward? No, no Siri Bobcat. And yet, Jesus looks at him and he says, Today, I'm going to save you. Which means that the word of God is absolutely true. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that by works of the law, no person will be justified. It's not about what somebody does or doesn't do. Rather, it's about whether or not they've united themselves with Christ by faith and chosen to receive the free gift of his grace. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, It is by grace that you have been saved. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Nothing this guy before this, he hasn't done anything to merit it. And there's nothing he will do after this to change. Which means for every Christian that there is nothing, 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 nothing about salvation that has to do with you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And his heart for you. And his work on your behalf. And whether or not you've willingly received it. This guy at this moment is saved. And his salvation is as good as any of yours who were saved as a kid. Any of yours will be before the day you die as a righteous man or woman. His salvation is just as good as yours. Because it's about Jesus and his grace. Not what he did. Amen. He says today. You will be with me. Meta emu in Greek. You will be with me. It's not, you're going to be over there and I'm going to be over here. Meta emu means I will be with you side by side. It is a personal expression. You will be in fellowship with me. The greatest thing about heaven is not seeing your relatives. It's not walking on streets of gold. It's about being with Jesus. If, if, let me tell you, there's two phrases in this. It's to, today you'll be with me in paradise. If paradise excites you more than with me, then I need you to question what's going on in your heart. With me is more beautiful and satisfying of a promise than the paradise. Meta emu, you will be together with me. And we see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, that indeed the picture of heaven is not one just of floating on clouds and glory and harps and all you can eat buffets with our relatives that we love. No, the beauty of heaven is behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And in verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need for sun, no need for a moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. The beauty of heaven is God. The thing you look forward to after death is getting to be with your Lord and Savior who bought your soul with his own lifeblood. You get to be with me. What a wonderful Savior. And then, on top of that, he says, you get to be with me in paradise. The word is oriental in origin. It's used by Persians to refer to the cultivated garden of the kings. The cultivated garden of the king. The place where you would only go if you were invited and summoned by the king himself. 
It's only used two more times in the scriptures. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. Only God knows. But he heard things which he cannot be told and which man can't utter. Essentially saying there's a place prepared for the people of God that is so wonderful it cannot be described with words. Second place it's used is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. And he says, here Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we go to the end of Revelation, we see that the tree of life is in the heavenly city of God. Revelation chapter 22. That it's there, the river, water of life flowing right from the throne of God. The throne of the lamb, Jesus, the lamb slain for the sins of the world and on either side of the, tr- the river there's the tree of life yielding its fruit for all to enjoy I'm telling you paradise is real and you can't imagine it but Jesus says truly truly I say to you this day today you will be with me If you look at all that has happened here, I hope that you sense the staggering nature of what's taking place and the amazing beauty of what Christ is saying here with his second saying from the cross. This criminal was in prison this morning. This criminal is hanging on the cross at noon, getting what he deserves. But by the end of the day, because of his humility, his confession, and his plea for salvation, and the willingness of a suffering Savior to apply the forgiveness that he is dying to provide to this man. By the end of this day, this man is with Jesus in heaven. And he's been with Jesus from that day until this day. He's still with him right now. Can you imagine what a trophy of grace that Jesus had to bring before the Father after his last breath? (laughs) Father, you gave me this man. Can you imagine him walking into heaven together? (laughs) And Jesus being proud to call him his own? (laughs) It's staggering that Christ here on the cross is willing to transfer, think about it, right beside this criminal. He's willing to transfer all of his righteousness to this man. It's called the imputation of salvation, the gift of God by his grace. The transfer of all of Christ's righteousness is moved to this man such that now he looks like he's not guilty. And all of the sin of this man is transferred onto Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians says, He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a transfer. 
His sins become Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes his. How does that happen? What a wonderful Savior. Amen? The question this morning is not whether or not you're one of the criminals. You are one of the criminals. You're there. You're hanging on the cross. You're headed to death. You will die. And if you die in sin, you will get death and eternal separation from God. Your your possibility for judgment, your desperation is just as much as these criminals. It's not whether or not you're a criminal. You are a criminal. The question is, which criminal are you? Which one are you? We too can look up at God and say, Lord Jesus, remember me. Lord Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. It is never too late. This guy did it in his last breath. You're sitting here today, you think it's too late, I've done too much. It's never too late. And you can never be too bad. what this guy shows us. He can happen in your last breath. And I'm telling you, you're not promised any other breath besides today, but it can happen even now. It's never too late and you're not too bad. It has nothing to do with what you've done. You've done enough to be separated from God. It's not about you. I'm in the same condition as you. You cannot be too bad. There's no sin that's greater than the grace of Jesus. And salvation is quite simple. just receive it believe it but God has to do this work in your heart this is a personal moment for every person including you you might have thought today that forgiveness was just something that everybody gets because Jesus died on the cross but what this criminal teaches us is that these two criminals teach us is that not every person actually receives the forgiveness that Christ died to obtain. There has to be a personal moment of salvation for every person and Christ is a wonderful savior to all who will turn to him, humble themselves, confess their sin, acknowledge his righteousness and ability to save and plead, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ is a wonderful savior and he gives and he gives and he gives his grace and it is guaranteed by your willingness to unite with him in repentance and in faith. Have you experienced the salvation of Christ? And on a daily basis, even if you have, do you see yourself as the criminal that doesn't deserve anything but death and separation? And do you see yourself as a mercy of God's abundant, abounding grace? I'll close today if Robbie will go ahead and come with the words of, I think, the only song, the only hymn that has ever been written about this moment between these criminals and our Savior, Jesus. It was written by William Cowper. And some of you guys are gonna be familiar with the song. But I'll close with this. He says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain 
in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Let me pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the cross. Lord, you gave yourself on the cross because you loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever might believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. Lord, you love us so much. Every person in this room, you love with an infinite, unexpressible love, God. Love that is higher than the the heavens above the earth. That is wider than the east is from the west. And Lord Jesus, you came that we might be set free from our sin and saved, forgiven. And we know as you hung there on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. You died that we might be forgiven. But we look at the criminals, God, and we know that not every person is willing to receive the forgiveness that you offer. Salvation has to be realized in a personal way in every person's life. God, I know this morning that there are people listening to me in the sound of my voice, whether here, whether listening online. God, there are people that have already received what you offer, who have put themselves in a place of just pleading for mercy and have experienced the salvation that you have provided. But God, there are people that have not. Lord, In either case, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, you would draw sinners to yourself. We are all there as the criminals. And that, Lord, you would awake faith in our heart to see you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have done and what you provide, such that every person here could delight, could delight in humbling ourselves to receive from your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood that purchased our salvation and for the promise that those who come to you, you will never cast out. You are a wonderful Savior. Thank you, God. Help us respond today in faith. In Jesus' name.